Hello everybody and welcome back, or maybe welcome for the first time, to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz, and uh, once again, Baz can't be with us, but fear not, dear listeners, because I've got the author of the Burn After Running blog and convention GM extraordinaire, Mr Guy Milner with us. How are you doing, Guy? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be back. Clearly the, um, the complaints haven't hit you yet. A week is too short a time for them to uh, really kick off about me. That's good. Yeah, I set up a special filter on the spam filter for anything with Guy in it, which might mean I'm missing quite a lot of conversations, actually, because Guy's a popular word. But... Run out of memory on the on the email, so. <laughs> That's right, yeah. The spam is quite large now. But not just Guy. Once again, we've got a special guest. It is the RPG producer and developer at Atlas Games, creator of the Alexandrian blog and now YouTube channel, any award-winning Justin Alexander. How are you doing, Justin? I am doing great. It's super exciting to be here. Well, first, first of all, let's let's start off then with the Alexandrian, if you don't mind. That's a, a resource that's been out there for some time. Uh, it's quite eclectic. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, documents and uh, advice and uh, essays and reviews and all kinds of things on there. What, what sort of brought you about creating the Alexandrian? And uh, I guess a supplementary question, if you will, I can get two in one, is kind of what's led then to sort of the YouTube version of it that's come out. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so the Alexandrian was created back in 2005. And basically when I created the site, the idea was to actually have it be an, an archival site for a lot of my writing that had previously appeared in other places. I'd written reviews for a, a wide number of uh, pro and semi-pro outlets, including uh, magazines that no longer exist, like Pyramid Magazine and Campaign Magazine, uh, the Gaming Outpost, RPG, and the like. And I'd also written a number of short articles that had appeared in a wide variety of magazines and the like as well. So I had all this kind of a content that was floating around. Some of it was still in print, available digitally. Some of it had been only in print and was no longer available because the magazines were long out of print. And every so often I would get an email from someone saying, hey, there was this review of a game that you wrote that I would really like to get my hands on again. Is there any place I can find it? And often my answer was, well, here, here it is in an email format. But I realized if there's this many people actually taking the effort to reach out to me by by email, there's probably other people who are just like, guess I'll never find it again. <laughs> and so the earliest posts on the Alexandrian were taking all these reviews, reviews of novels and TV shows and, and primarily role-playing games and, and posting them on my site. There's also a bunch of other sort of eclectic random creations from back then as well. The big turning point for the Alexandrian actually came a couple of years after that. Uh, I had been reading and participating in discussions on uh, Seamus Young's blog, actually. Uh, he was the creator, is the creator of the DM of the Ring webcomic, where he took screenshots from Lord of the Rings and re-scripted it as if it was players playing through an RPG campaign with the DM. And he's had a ton of really fascinating insight and, and analysis on video games and the like. And there was a post on there where he was talking about encumbrance values in D&D. And it ended up in me kind of like spinning up a conversation with some people there talking about the ways in which encumbrance works in D&D and why it works that way. And it ended up me, resulting in me writing an article called D&D Calibrating Your Expectations, which specifically looked to sort of primarily the, the, I mean, there's a lot of different influences on the design of D&D in history, but at the time third edition was out and I was primarily looking at the simulationist elements of D&D and how if you looked at if you if you look at the numbers you're putting into the system 
what conclusions can you draw about what kind of characters there are? Like one of the big sort of conclusions from that was the idea that like we often think of Aragorn or or Conan being like 20th level characters because like they're big important characters and we like them. So they must be the highest level possible, right? But if you look at like what the numbers are actually telling you uh, about what those characters do in the fiction and what level they would need to be in D&D, I was like, they're actually probably like fifth or sixth level characters. And if you calibrate your expectations accordingly, you'll stop having these weird moments of dissociation where you're like, hey, why am I 20 20th level characters able to like leap off a 400 foot cliff and survive? Like Aragorn couldn't do that. Conan couldn't do that. And and it's because 20th level D&D characters aren't Aragorn or Conan. They're more like you know, Hercules, the demigod, right? So that was the article I wrote. And I wrote it and I was like, I need some place to put this article. I've, I've just kind of spewed words onto a page. Where can I put it? And I was like, oh, I have this site with archives my writing, so I'll put it there. And the big turning point there was that somebody said, hey, this is a cool article. And they posted it to a site called StumbleUpon, which was a, a, a content sharing site. I think it's still lingering around somewhere. It was the Reddit of its day. And it happened to post at exactly the right time to go viral on that site. And suddenly my little archive site went from having a couple of dozen people a month coming by to look at stuff to 10,000 people uh, a day coming to look at this article. And a lot of those people then stuck around. And it, it really is about the power of having an audience. Like it's one thing you can write as much as you want, but if you're just tossing under the void, it takes a, a, a supreme effort of will to keep doing that over and over again. But once you know there's like a few, even just a few dozen people who are going to read something that you write, it becomes a lot easier to like, to do that and to put that out into the world. And that resulted in me writing follow-up articles like the Three Clue Rules that takes a look at how to design mystery scenarios. And that became very viral. And that led to note-based scenarios. And that became very viral. And that's kind of where the Alexandrian took a turn from being about just archiving old content to being a place where I was sharing new and updated thoughts, primarily about role-playing games. And the site's pretty much entirely role-playing games these days. So it's very much the evolution of the site. Hmm. And you've, you've kind of been doing a kind of replay of your greatest hits on YouTube, I guess you would call it, where you're kind of converting some of those old articles into, uh, well, a, an audiovisual treat rather than being a, an old school just archive of a document. Is that a conscious thing because of streamed games and people just consume content that way, or uh, what's what's the reason for that transition? Yeah, the the logic there is very much that the there is an audience for for written word content, and there is an audience for for audio content and video content. And it is a Venn diagram. A lot of those people overlap. I certainly overlap. But there are a lot of people in that Venn diagram who will never read a blog post or people who will never watch a video. It became clear to me a couple of years back that, that I really wanted to be able to start reaching out to some of the people who only were only going to process that information through video and could be introduced to that. And so I launched the YouTube channel and there's a couple of series on there now. We have an advanced game mastery series uh, which really looks to try and share advanced techniques for game masters who have maybe been GMing for a while and really want to take their games to the next level. I also have a series on there called Quick GM Tips, which is pretty much what it says on the tin. It's Quick GM Tips in a Minute, the YouTube shorts, uh, showing one little kind of thing. Like, this is one little thing. Do it in your next session. You can just immediately apply it and see what happens, and you can build those up over time to become become a better GM. Uh, we also have a series on there called Let's Read D&D 1974, where we're actually reading through the entire 1974 edition of D&D and kind of doing a deep dive into the design of that, the history of it, and how it, how it actually works in play. 
And we're hoping to do more content like that in general. Now you mentioned like the greatest hits aspect of that video of that video channel. And there's a lot of those on there. Like the first video on there was a three clue rule video looking at how to design mysteries and RPGs. And one of the reasons for that is over time at the Alexandrian, we have we have collectively, me and the audience and else built up a sort of like foundational understanding of certain principles that then underlie a lot of the other work that we do as game masters in terms of remixing adventures, prepping adventures, running adventures. And a good example of this is the three clue rule. So for those not familiar with the three clue rule, it's basically a principle that says if you're designing a mystery scenario in RPGs, uh, for any conclusion that you want the PCs to make, any revelation you want them to have, you want to include at least three clues pointing at that conclusion. And it just makes the it makes the mystery scenario robust. Now that three clue rule then leads directly into node-based scenario design, which uses the inverted three clue rule, which is that if you're in a scene and you include at least three clues pointing to other scenes, then the players will figure out at least one of those things and the adventure will continue. So you don't need to have all three clues in the scene point to the same conclusion. They can be three different conclusions, but you can still have a robust scenario that will continue over time. And so one thing we're doing at the website at, at, with the video series is that there is some new content there as well, but some of the content necessarily needs to be revisiting those sort of foundational principles like the three clue rule, because until we talk about the three clue rule, we can't talk about no based design. If we can't talk about no based design, then we can't talk about things like how to remix an adventure like Dragon Heist or Avernus uh, or, or build your own campaigns along those lines. So some of that is just literally the, the targeted at the audience for people who are never going to read the blog posts, but sure. we want to be able to kind of build. Yeah. And and I want to be able to build unique video content that wouldn't be possible in blog posts. Uh, but to do that, there is overlap in what needs to be established. Yeah, the, the thing that strikes me about the about the YouTube, and I, I, I say this as, as, as a blogger as well, that's also thinking, oh, that's a good idea, um, is how short some of them are. That Like the quick GM tips, it's, it's a minute, isn't it? It, mm -hmm. And, and the, even the advanced games mastery series, a sort of 20, 25 minutes. Was that a sort of conscious design decision in a field where a lot of YouTube videos, sort of an hour is the minimum you're going to get? You know, you do a lot of things when you search to find a review of a game or whatever, and it might be like two hours long. Was that a mm -hmm. conscious decision to make it like super tight, super quick? Yes, it's it's a conscious decision, and but partly and mainly the conscious decision is making content that I would enjoy, like beyond beyond the YouTube beyond the YouTube videos, any other type, any content I make, whether it's games at Atlas Games or reviews on on the Alexandrian or remixes or YouTube videos, uh, it's about making content that I enjoy, and the YouTube videos that I enjoy are the ones that get to the freaking point. Like th there are so many videos out there where like, okay, here's the one tip you need to like solve the problem you're having. We've buried it in the middle of our 37 minute long video. The actual content is 15 seconds. And you're like, oh my God. And it just takes you forever to actually get to the point. And so that is something like, these are the videos I would want to watch. Like I could, you know, it would be very easy to take one of those quick GM tips. Um, for example, one of the quick GM tips is if you want to improve your descriptions in your role-playing games, you, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're describing a scene, uh, include at least three of your five senses. So like oftentimes we just default to like describing what the characters can see, make a point, you know, you'll still include sight, 
virtually all the time, but try to make a point of including two of the other four, right? Include, include taste or touch or smell or the like to increase immersion in that description. Super quick tip, I've just given it here. You could easily like be like, well, let's make a 20 minute video about RPG descriptions and like ramble on about different types of touch or taste or et cetera. But I don't know there would be any value add to that. And so I think it's much more effective to have that one minute quick in and out. Here's the thing you can do, go do it. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned uh, no base design and stuff like that. I mean, we were on, um, we're speaking to Thomas or Thomas from uh, Freely Games last time about the Blade Runner RPG, which has got an investigative aspect to it. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out. But some of the previous games, like Tales from the Loop, for example, I think are clearly influenced by the no base design principle. Is that, do you see that something yourself in other game designers? Do you see like things you've talked about emerge, or do you think it's all just, Lots of people coming up with the same damn ideas, just in different ways, at the, in different places. I, I think some of the ideas that we've had at the Alexandrian, because like the three clue rule is 14 years old now, which means a little bit crazy as I say that out loud. <laughs> I've talked to enough designers over the years to know that because they come to me and they say, hey, I'm going to be using some of your ideas in, in my adventures, in my work. Thank you so much. Some of them have credited me, which is great. But that is kind of the goal of, of sharing these ideas. It's not like the three clue rule is mine. It's my precious. No one else should be allowed to use it. It's like, here is something that will make adventures better. Everybody should be doing this. And so I, there is that. And I think it's been around long enough, though, that the idea has percolated into not just people who've directly read my work, but have read work by people who have read my work, if that makes sense, that there are certainly people out there who have never read the Alexandrian who are using three clue rule design. Um, as a result, uh, with, without me necessarily being involved. Now, with that being said as well, it's certainly also quite possible that people can come to these ideas independently because they're just, I mean, if I say so myself, they're just good ideas. And they're also influenced by others. Like a, a big influence on Three Clue Rule and, and node-based scenario design is the classic Masks of Nyarlathotep uh, campaign uh, designed by Larry Dottilio back in the 80s, uh, which which has like literally like lists of clues you can find and where they point to. And like a big part of my work there, we, we, uh, my own personal development was seeing Massanilethotep, loving Massanilethotep, and then analyzing, okay, what did this do that makes it work so well? And then generalizing that out to wider principles. But like Larry Dottilio did it without necessarily like having a three clue rule in mind, for example. So like that's that's something I think we can all benefit from as game masters and creators is analyzing the things that we love and figuring out why did that work so we can apply those lessons uh, in our own work. Yeah, it's quite, I, I, it almost feels, I don't know, it, it, it almost feels like I notice more when it's not there a little bit now in published <laughs> scenarios or where it's where it's done sort of the opposite, what it's trying to, what it's trying to achieve. So I'm, I'm running The Enemy Within at the moment, Shadows of a Bergen Haven, just getting to the end of it. And it's as Gaz is in the game as well, so he, he can give you a player's perspective on it. It, it is it is really noticeable that there's lots of bits where, if you don't go to this one particular place, and there are like 15 other places you might go in Bergenhaven, if you don't go there and find it this one thing, then well they fix it because then an NPC comes and tells you the clue that you need. But there's not there's on the face of it lots of flexibility, but it's not linked to the plot. There's no it doesn't all point towards the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's compared to say Vason, which I've run quite a lot of, which sort of embeds that a lot into it and has multiple routes, multiple clues pointing there. And you can be confident that you'll find, you'll be confident you'll get to the confrontation, you'll get to the next step. You don't get stuck turtling because there's enough clues there that will point you to the next thing. 
there. And one of, one of the things about node-based design in Vaisen that is good, I guess, is that you can often split the party and go to different nodes. So two people get a one node, and two people, which avoids the mm -hmm. Call of Cthulhu thing of like, oh, we've got a clue that's six people with shotguns go and visit the old lady to find out <laughs> like, what happened. Which, that's one of the great things about that node-based approach is it does encourage splitting the party. And I think there's actually a lot of really cool pacing things you can do as a GM once you've split the party up because you can swap back and forth between the groups in ways that you can build cliffhangers, you can cut past dead time in a much more elegant way. It's just a lot of really cool things that happen at that point. And also allows the, the players to make some really key decisions about how we're going to split the party and when and why we're going to split the party. So I think there's lots of, I mean, we talk about like, don't split the party, but there's so many cool things that happen when you split the party. Uh, there are ways to encourage that I think are really great. Hmm. It's interesting too, you mentioned the enemy within. Um, actually the enemy within was, was a campaign I was actively working on prepping when I was first writing the node-based scenario design. And so actually breaking down some of the some of the overly linear or fragile elements of that really fantastic campaign were part of that. I sadly never actually got to run the enemy within that group fell apart because half of it moved to different states uh, at the time. Um, but it's interesting that, that you're reflecting on that as well, because it was what I was reflecting on at the time I was uh, writing that original essay. That's good. Cool. I've noticed one of the other things uh, as well, some of the reviews you've done, you've sort of tackled D&D &D scenarios or source books and things like that, which I think is interesting because uh, something you not from a lot of reviews these days or I reflect upon is that a lot of people, something comes out and he goes, oh, this is amazing. And then that's kind of like all you get. And you go, is it amazing now? I'm not sure it is because you say everything's amazing. So now I'm not <laughs> sure where the quality difference is. But I think that that's the key to it, what you're mentioning there is you can be critical of things as long as you're pointing out why. So, for example, you wrote an article on Candlekeep, I think it was, or one of those, The Mysteries, and you kind of graded them from A to F into like an old school method of things. But, you know, there's, there's one of them you just put down as an F, but you didn't just say this is rubbish. You kind of went, this makes no sense for these reasons, and like just list it out. And that, I think that's a, a productive way of doing something. And then equally, you went back to like, another one got an A, and you said like, this is a good scenario, and this is why it's a good scenario. So without giving away too many plot details, you're kind of like analyzing the design of a scenario and what worked and didn't. And I think that's that's the key, that's a kind of like gaming goal that wants to mine out of things. And I don't know, do, do you think that's perhaps lacking for something or is it just a unique approach to you or do you see it in other people's work as well? I mean, what you're describing, it's really heartwarming to hear that because it's exactly my goal. It, it's fundamental to me in writing a review that the person reading the review could theoretically say, I don't agree with you and therefore I know the thing you didn't like, I will like and I will go find it. Or conversely, I I see that you liked that and the reasons why you liked it, I know that for me, that means I will not like it. And you really wanna have that context because my opinion as a reviewer is almost worthless. The fact that I liked a movie or I liked an adventure or I liked a book or didn't like them means nothing to you uh, unless you know me personally and therefore can make some assessment of how similar our tastes are and that's one of the jobs of the review is to make sure that like you don't know me but you know enough about me that you can make that 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 judgment on your own part but what so that my opinion is useless as as a reviewer but my but my critical thought is hopefully useful to you as a reader and that's kind of the way I think about it and someone who really heavily influenced me on that is um, Harlan Ellison uh, Harlan Ellison, uh, back in the in the late, I believe late 70s, but definitely into the 80s, uh, wrote a series of movie reviews 
for a Los Angeles paper. And the, it was a column called Watching with Harlan Ellison. And there was actually a collection of, they, he actually published a collection of all of his reviews called Watching. And it's a fantastic book, really great insight into, into the way Harlan Ellison thinks and the way that movies work and the way that speculative fiction stories work. And it was a book that I read in the late 90s at the time that I was first writing reviews for RPGNet and was kind of breaking into writing reviews and breaking into the industry. And so it had a very large impact on me as, as a writer and as a reviewer in terms of how those things approach. So yes, I think absolutely, like as you talk about with those Candlekeep mystery reviews, it's very much my desire and goal to not just say this sucks or this is great. It is to critically analyze it and share that analysis and thought process that people can think about that for themselves. And I do think, you know, touching on how unique that is, I will certainly pat myself in the back and be like, I, I, it takes an effort of will in, in our current culture to say, I, I, you know, when Candlekeep Mysteries comes out, the desire is to immediately publish your video, immediately publish your review, and immediately push that content out into the world because that's when it's hot, that's when the takes can be hottest, that's when you'll have the biggest people searching for it, et cetera. And it takes an effort of will to not to be like, I gotta do it right now, because to do the work that we're talking about takes time. I have to sit down and read the book cover to cover. I have to think carefully about how it's working, why it's working, do the analysis, figure out how to share that analysis. And that that takes time. My review of Candlekeep Mysteries uh, came out months after the book did. And, and I've heard from quite a few people that it's still useful to them, that they're still thinking, you know, some people who would pass by the book were like, actually, it looks like there's enough good adventures in there, I should pick it up. Other people are using it to guide which adventures they want to use. So there's still value in that. But man, it does take an effort of will to not just jump on and be like, I flipped through the book this morning. It looks fantastic. There's my 25 minute video. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, there are quite a lot of videos of people like literally reading the book, which I don't find it useful to be quite honest with you. Well, something we talked about, like, I was talking about having that Let's Read 1974 D&D series that we do on the YouTube channel, right? And like, if it was just me sitting there reading the book page by page, what would be <laughs> the point? But like what we're doing at the series is actually diving in and taking a, a critical look and and a history look at what where this book came from and what it means and how it works and i think hopefully there is value in that but that's yeah yeah just people sitting there reading the book i'm like man i can read a book <laughs> it's an interesting thing about what I, I guess it gets the heart of like what a games review is isn't it because a, a an rpg it, it isn't a book like that's not it's that's not its primary sort of art i'm sounding completely pretentious now is it but it, actually in play is where it where it hits and so you need that sort of deep dive, actually think about prepping it and running it. I'm, I know I'm trying on the blog to, to, to now, I haven't always done it, to only put reviews on of stuff that I've played or run. And like say, it's hard to resist the urge to, oh, I've got the new D&D hardback, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll stick that out. And I, I did it. I put a review of Ravnica on like a week after I bought it, like flicking through, saying, oh, the, all these races look great, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. But rather than spend the hours kind of go and analyze it and say, what will this look like at the table? Well, it's also something... So I, I have the YouTube channel. I also do some Twitch streaming as well. And there's a lot of people who just take their Twitch streams and like post those to YouTube. And I've had other people say like, why don't you do that? And I say, well, it's because the content I'm doing on Twitch is a different kind of content. Like if I'm putting it on YouTube, that video exists 
forever. And so I want to have some some thought and some value to what's going on that YouTube channel. And this is purely me personally. I mean, YouTube also has streaming. So like, what am I even talking about? But that's this is how I divide my work in my head. Twitch is a place where I can go like, you know, this book just came out. Let's flip through and take a look at it together. It's more of a hangout kind of mentality. And I totally understand that parasocial hangout kind of thing. Um, but it is, that's not a review. I don't, I don't describe those as reviews. They are, they are just hanging out and let's take a look at a book together. And I think, I think that's a distinction I think would be more useful for people to understand the difference between um, previews, first looks and reviews. And, and each of those I think are distinct things and describing your like, I'm just flipping through the book and saying, this looks awesome with you can be something that has value to some people but it's not a review it's not right. it's not actually looking at the book and 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 like particularly people like just flip through a book share it with say like the day of and like well this is and then put a grade on it or or a number like this is a nine out of ten or an a or a b or whatever i don't know how you can possibly say that when you haven't actually had a chance to like even necessarily process the material yeah but baz who's will be listening at home now and thoroughly enjoying the show i'm sure although regretting that he can't be on it he did the thing with the, the Reinquest starter set because most of the things I've seen for that are like it's fantastic, it's perfect, it's brilliant, it's amazing but that's not very qualitative and he, but he did a, like a six or eight part set like side podcast where he went through and talked through each book and what he thought of it and what, what he didn't see that he was expecting and all that kind of stuff and that that was great but it did take like six to eight weeks <laughs> like, to go through all those different books so yeah there's, um, there's a definitely a tension between being able to get content out in time and the value of the content that you can get out, or how deep it is, rather than just a superficial look at it. Well, it's interesting too because this is actually something we struggle with professionally at, at, when, at, at Atlas, for example, when when the RPG producer, and it's something we struggle with when we when we seek out playtest feedback for RPG products. When we seek out playtest feedback for card games or board games, for example, we never have any difficulty with the fact that people you know that they have to actually play the thing to give me playtest feedback on it. Like nobody, nobody asked to playtest a board game and be like, "Hey, I read the rule book and I have some feedback for you." Um, right. Like that would never happen. But a role playing game that happens all the time, where you'll send out a role playing adventure, for example, and say, "We need some playtest feedback on this," and most of the feedback you'll get is people saying, "Hey, I read the adventure," and I'm like. I read the adventure too. What I need you to do is play it with people so we know where I know what works and doesn't work on the page. I need to know what works and doesn't work at everybody's at everybody's tables. The other problem too we went into with RPG playtesting, which is a related but separate problem, is that you send out material for playtesting and the feedback comes back and like, okay, so the first thing I did was change the entire adventure. And then I ran it and these things didn't work. And I'm like, then I, that's not useful to me because you changed, <laughs> you changed the adventure. And I, it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't think homebrewing is important in the role-playing industry. I mean, the Alexandrian has homebrews literally draped across every page. Homebrewing is important, but man, it's really difficult to convince to convince role players that if you're play testing the material, I need you to actually play what we wrote so we know if what we wrote works or not um, out of the box. It's, it's just an interesting challenge. It's it's funny you should say we were talking. Me and Gaz were talking just before we came on the call about um, the Smart Party YouTube channel, which is still extant. It's we've not recorded for a while, but that's that that's that was running sort of starter adventures as written as close as possible, and, and it's really hard. <laughs> like I ran uh, I ran Vason, I think the start of adventure invasion and it was really difficult to get to a point in it and think oh but this this is a bit clumsy this clue you, you just want to all your instincts are to just fudge it and do it it's a real real sort of pressure to do that and and, and keep it as written as it is 
yeah, there's definitely a, a tinge there because of all the great advice you've got on the Alexander and whatever else, and all the German knowledge we've accumulated, we're just used to playing in a certain way and making things better on the fly. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing you want to do, right? So, yeah, I can definitely, you're not the first designer who's come on and discussed that um, challenge, shall we call it. <laughs> Yeah, getting good playtest feedback can be can be a problem. So, yeah, uh, talking of Atlas games, then you're you're producing all the RPGs over there. Like, what's hot and new at the minute at Atlas? The the hottest and newest thing, which is consuming me at the moment, is the uh, Plain Gia setting for Fifth Edition. It's a Stone Age fantasy setting for Fifth Edition, uh, designed by David Somerville. David and I have been working on it with me in the developer role for about a year and a half now. We kickstarted it last fall, and we're really close to the book going to press now. So we're in that final polish stage where it's that thing about like the first 90, the the last 10% takes as long as the first 90%. We are deep in the the, the last 10% that getting that final polish on. But yes, yeah, so this is this is all that's in my brain right now as far as Atlas is concerned. It's this really cool setting because the thing I what we loved about what David had done with Plain GM and why we at Atlas got so excited about publishing it and playing it is that so often you see Stone Age RPG settings, including Stone Age fantasy settings, where they de- they're like, oh, it's the Stone Age, so there's all these things that don't exist. You know, gunpowder doesn't exist, and this doesn't exist. You don't have that, and so the whole setting is defined by all the things you can't do because it's the Stone Age. And David very cleverly uh, came in from the opposite side. Actually, you know what we're going to do? Our design principle would be that if you can do it in Fifth Edition D and D, you can do it in Plain Gia. And then the Stone Age stuff will be everything else we have on top of that. So anything you can do in fifth edition, you can do in plain Gia, but you can also ride dinosaurs and explore explore caverns filled with ancient magic cave paintings and explore the world as it's new. And so there's all these new elements that come into it rather than being a subtractive experience. So that's it's a it's a really exciting setting that that I think really like I say gives you everything you can do in D and D, but then gives you gives you more, gives you something unique. And given your design focused approach and and looking at why things are good, and then you presumably put some of that into the game, right? So. Is, is there anything you've done with the 5e engine to sort of like gear it for the game you want to sort of like fine tune it for the sort of experience you're after? To some extent, the biggest thing for us, like I say, because because David's approach was this should be everything in D&D 5th edition and then more is that we it's it's not a full standalone like new 5th edition game. Those exist. This is very much take the fifth edition rules and you can play in this setting. So the biggest things I was looking at from that kind of design mindset that you're talking about is what kind of structures can we use to make Stone Age play and merge it at the table? So like, for example, one of the things that, uh, one of the key things in the setting is the idea that mortal life revolves around the clan. And so there are these migrating clans that that are migrating throughout the setting. Okay, well, if you have a migrating clan, what tools do you need to quickly generate a clan at the table if the PCs come across a migrating clan? If you are in a clan, what does it mean to be migrating? Like, what does each campsite give you as a unique adventure location? And so those are structures that we discuss within, that we look at specifically as structures in the rulebook with accompanying tools to help GMs quickly flesh those out um, as they need to. Uh, and, and it's really about 
it's it's really about finding the right tools and structures. So, for example, another cool thing we have in the book is a is a wilderness die drop. So, as you're exploring the Stone Age wilderness, there's actually a system where you can take a handful of dice, drop it on a piece of paper, and and basically there's a mechanical set that will tell you, okay, based on where the dice dropped and the values on the dice, these are the features of this wilderness area, and these are the cool adventure locations you can find there. So, there's a lot of those tools that kind of build on top of fifth edition to make it to make it easier for the GM and to also give the players hooks in to really kind of begin grappling with the world and exploring this this unique setting. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the weakest pillars, isn't it? That, that well, the three pillars of DD is supposed to be about exploration, but if you look through the DMG, there's not a massive amount in there which actually helps you explore stuff, right? There's not. That's definitely true. Yeah, I think there's a paragraph, and then there's the uh, there's the rules for exhaustion, and that's then there's some <laughs> random encounters, and you're like. There's random accounts that you think they put in just because it's D and D. We've got to have that, but yeah, it's good to hear that getting a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more effort and a bit more sort of um, attention. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is something I talked about in the Alexandrian uh, a while back about like with where did the exploration pillar go, and like so you you know you got you've got those three pillars of of, of social and combat and exploration, and and I think part of it one of the reasons why I think exploration gets so much ink spilt about it is that there's such clear structures for the other two that like combat actually obviously has the entire combat system so like you're like what's combat oh it's it's you roll initiative and you fight something and like the social interactions well you know the basic structure of an rpg is the conversation between gms and players so the the natural the natural structure of a conversation is that structure and so those structures exist it, it is why i find that like a lot of times when people are talking about the exploration pillar in fifth edition they're like oh well it's not there because you know hex crawling isn't there and i'm a big hex crawling fan but hex crawling is not the be all and end all of exploration but i understand why people sometimes think oh well that that would solve all of my problems if i just had hex crawling rules because they're seeing oh there's these structures for these other pillars and there's no structure for exploration hex crawling is an exploration structure so if i just have a hex crawl i will have exploration but I think actually the biggest problem that fifth edition has in terms of of having that exploration pillar is that exploration is here comes my hot take. Exploration is antithetical to the way that most modern RPG adventures are designed. Because most modern RPG adventures are designed as a linear sequence of events. Not always railroaded, but as a linear sequence of events. And if you have a linear sequence of events where before you ever start playing, you know that A is going to happen, B is going to happen, C is going to happen, there's no room for exploration within that structure. Because you're, you know, that's not exploration, that is a road trip. Right. Like if, if I drive from from Minneapolis in where I live in, in the United States, Minneapolis to Chicago to New York, I'm not exploring. I'm just driving down the interstate from Minneapolis to Chicago to New York. And and that's the problem. I think a lot of uh, that, that I think that's why so many people struggle with exploration fifth edition is that exploration means that you need to have a different way of approaching adventures than that linear prep, that plot-based prep that is so pervasive in a lot of modern RPG. Do you think we're getting better at it? Do you, do you think that published adventures are improving? I'm thinking of, for instance, like Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, which I know you've got a YouTube video about, it certainly does that thing. Another game that I'm running at the moment, just, I'm just talking about my, a review of all my campaigns. That has sort of full, you know, proper sandbox, the first, like, mm-hmm. two, first two tiers almost, doesn't it? It's got a big map loads of places to go and then it is it does feel a bit like spoilers for my uh my players that are listening it feels a bit like as written once you hit sixth level 
yeah, you do the chapters in order and go to the place in order. I, are we yeah, getting and I somewhere think, though? Is that a starting point? That yeah, and I think I think the thing is like you are you are seeing overall people overall the industry as a whole is getting better at this, and where where it's very slow is unsurprisingly at Wizards of the Coast. And I don't even mean that necessarily as a criticism of Wizards of the Coast, although maybe it is a little bit, because like Wizards of the Coast is is the behemoth. It is the giant. It is the Titanic. And it's it's real easy to sit in a skiff and be like, why doesn't it just turn and avoid that iceberg? Well, because no, it's a giant ship. It's a giant ship uh, with a ton of momentum behind it, and so it's really difficult to to you know to to to, uh, to change that direction. Uh, but certainly, we're seeing a, a lot of exploration of of different forms of adventure prep and the like, ranging from just you know from hex crawls becoming becoming popular again in many ways. Uh, games like Blades in the Dark that that have a have a very different way a, a sandbox approach to, to prepping adventures uh there are games like tech noir which uses a plot mapping mechanic to have a non-linear way of exploring that space the dracula dossier from pelgrim press for the uh, knife black agents game is another great example of experimental scenario structures obviously the node-based structure design we were talking about earlier with i mean and, you know it's, it's always been there someplace right like you go all the way back to the 80s with massive nihilothotep there it is there um or the more recent eternal lies campaign from pelgrim press for trail of cthulhu so those are all you know that it's there um i think the thing that you're seeing at wizards of the coast is that there's a clear desire to explore these alternative structures and Icewind Dale is a great example of this like you say the the first part of the of the of the campaign the first six levels is this open sandbox where the PCs can kind of go anywhere there's a there's a cloud of adventure hooks that they're given they can explore how they want to and then about six level the GM is told okay now give them this one specific scenario hook and NPC is going to show up and tell them where to go from now on and it's a very it's a very like like what happened there there's a complete disconnect between what the beginning of the campaign is and the end uh, and you see that even more dramatically in descent into avernus for example where descent into avernus in its marketing copy even within the book itself it keeps talking about how oh you're going you're going to go to avernus and you're going to explore the the wilds of avernus and you're going to go out into the wilderness and explore avernus but then the actual structure that they use for that is actually just literally a railroad where you just have an npc tell you to go to this place and then the npc tells you to go to this place and it's just it's just a line of npcs telling you to go places and so <laughs> so it's clearly a desire and there's clearly some experimentation but but this is something you end up with is that until you actually begin looking at the scenario structures that will let you explore those kinds of play you you end up with a situation where i really want to tell this 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 type of story or this type of adventure but i don't I, the designers some extent don't know how to do that and that is a place where i think dnd has regressed and what i mean by that is that something i talked about is like if you look at traditionally the types of scenarios that that you can assume a game master knows how to run have traditionally been like dungeon crawls. Everyone knows how to run a dungeon crawl. Uh, and they have been uh, railroads. They have been prep a plot and then force your players to jump through the plot. And then there's a little bit of mystery, but a lot of mysteries are actually just railroads. Right. right? And the reason for that is that dungeon crawls in the early editions of D&D D&D knew it had to teach people how to run dungeons because no one had done it before. And so the earliest editions of D&D teach people how to prepare a dungeon and how to run a dungeon, like the actual procedural steps of do this and then this and then this, and now you're running a game. Congratulations. And what's happened over the last, I'd say about 20, 25 years with D&D is that 
there is an assumption that just everyone knows how to run a dungeon. So it's not even that they consciously say, so we're not going to include that in the rule books. It's that it's so deeply ingrained in them that this is how a dungeon works. They don't even really necessarily realize they need to explain that. And so if you look at like third edition D&D, there's still details in there about how to like draw a dungeon map, key the dungeon map, put content in the dungeon map, but not a lot about actually running the dungeon. And then that regresses even further and further. And in fifth edition, if you look at the core rule books of fifth edition, not only do they not really give you a procedure or guidelines for how to actually run a dungeon, but they don't tell you how to key a dungeon map either. And there's not even an example of a dungeon map in fifth edition, there, a, a, a key dungeon map. There is, a, there is a map, which is the outlines of the room, but there's no numbers on that or explanation of how that works. And it's a really fascinating oversight to me, because if you look over in the starter set, for example, there's still no details about how to prep or run a dungeon. But in the starter set, like at the beginning of the starter set, thereabouts, there's a section where they're like, this is boxed text. It looks like this. And what you're supposed to do with boxed text is read it out loud. And there's like a half page explaining exactly what boxed text is and how it's supposed to work. And then you turn the page and there's a map of a dungeon with numbers written on it and a bunch of like text which has numbers next to it. And and they never like, oh, this is a dungeon map. And this is how you use a dungeon map. So like, they're like, we need to explain to people how you read text out loud. That's a skill we need to explain. But how to like <laughs> read a dungeon map and use it in play just never occurs to them that that's necessary. And this is actually an increasing problem with, with D&D is that because they aren't teaching that to the new players anymore, there's really a whole generation of players who don't know how to run a dungeon. And you can see that in a lot of DM skill modules these days that I've had a number of DM skill modules I picked up because they looked really interesting and either they'll have a dungeon with no map or there'll be a map but no numbers on it and so it's just paragraphs of undifferentiated description like you know if you go into the dungeon there's this first room and if you go to the left you'll be in this other room you're like just put it's solve tech just put numbers on the map but of course it's not, it's not their fault no no one's <laughs> teaching them and so that that to me is the place where I think this is and looping this all around and I've gone on a huge rant here now, but looping this all the way back to are we getting better in some ways we are, but where we are still lacking is thinking about what are the actual structures you need to prep certain types of adventures, whether that's a dungeon crawl or a heist or a mystery and and when you don't have those structures it, it's a it's it's much more difficult to to unlock those experiences, to explore Avernus if you don't know what an exploration structure looks like, to do a true sandbox conclusion to Icewind Dale when all you know how to do for the big conclusion is is a linear is a linear sequence of events. So that's okay. My my rant's done for the moment. <laughs> I can see that completely because I think, and if you look at like first edition AD and D, or even like most of the modules for it, they start with like half a page of well quite arcane and archaic language sort of trying to explain how to do it it, it often mm -hmm. doesn't make much sense if you see what i mean they don't explain it terribly right. well often as, as but, they the way lot, but they have a good go don't they there's yeah. a big thing about and they talk about hirelings they talk about all this sort of regular stuff that unless you actually read how to do it you'd be like i mean i don't i i don't know how hirelings work i don't know what what they'd be but it explains it in first ad and d doesn't it how to get them and what happens mm -hmm. yeah i've written a couple of things for dm's guild and but the first one was actually a Barbarians of Lemuria adventure I did, and then my mate said, oh, why don't you write it up? And, like, you know, more people buy D&D, &D, so I brought it up as a D&D &D thing. And that's pretty linear. Like, so there's just, like, five things you got to one after the other. 
I find that's been quite popular. And then I've written another one, Shadow of the Devourer, if people want to head over to drive through right now. Which is more, uh, it's, it is kind of a dungeon crawl almost. It's in a, a, a temple with like three levels and a square layout with rooms that go around each other. But I put things in like a little mini map. So every every like box that description has got a little shaded in bit on the map of where you are currently and that kind of thing. Love it. You know, consequences of what's happening in the next room if you do something in this room and that and try to link the rooms together and then a bunch of random stuff that happens you can throw in for just generally make things more interesting, especially with cleared rooms and stuff. It's great, but that's just not sold anywhere near as well. And I don't know, I don't think it's for the people I think. I, there could be a many reasons for that. Maybe people were my first adventure and went, I don't want any more of this rubbish. That that could be the reason. But <laughs> yeah, that, that like dungeon based stuff, I think for people of our age, if I can include you in the, my advanced years in that similar sort of age group, uh, are used to dungeon crawls and understand having dungeons and how that might be included in the, in the game. I don't know, maybe a younger generation's more used to watching Critical Role and a dungeon might be, you know, mm-hmm. four rooms or something and it's more about spending two hours in a pub talking to each other rather than right. the, the classic D&D type stuff you do, perhaps. I do think the interesting thing there is like, you know, I think there's truth to that. But like, obviously the dungeon is no longer the centerpiece of Dungeons and Dragons. But every every Wizards of the Coast adventure they publish has a dungeon in it. So like, they, you know, that, that there is still the need to understand, and not, not, all, not all literal dungeons, right, but location crawls, that, that structure of, of how rooms fit together and how you run them. Yeah. Again, I mean, no spoilers for Ryan and the Frostmaiden, but I think they're they're pretty much all dungeons, aren't they? There's like well, even yeah. at the start, each of the each of the towns has yeah. got its own little dungeon attached, hasn't it? And then you yeah, just go on to some bigger ones, and then right. No, it's I mean the thing is like the, the basic. I mean, we talk about dungeon crawling, but you know if you genericize that to location crawls, it's an it's an incredibly versatile structure in terms of having a map with key locations on it that you geographically navigate. And one of the things about it is it's incredibly robust. Like I was, we were talking about the three clue rule and how the three clue rule is a way of making mystery scenarios robust as opposed to fragile so that they can potentially break during play. And dungeons are just inherently super robust, which is one of the reasons why I think that they are so essential to why D&D was successful to begin with is that the act of creating a dungeon pretty much invariably means that you have a robust experience. And so far that like the basic structure of a dungeon is that you are in a room, you can do stuff in that room, but when you're done doing stuff in that room, there is a default action that says, well, pick an exit and go through it. So the players the players are never like, what should we be doing next? Because the answer is always pick a door. You know, like it's the easiest, most obvious thing in the universe is pick a door. And then for the, for the game master prepping the material, it's incredibly difficult to design a dungeon that will break during play. You have to like specifically put in secret doors that you then put essential content behind and then force the players to make checks to find those secret doors so they miss the checks, they never find the thing. Like it's incredibly difficult to actually do that. In general, you just fill the dungeon with stuff and the dungeon works. And so that's really valuable for new, for new game masters to be able to have a structure where they just put stuff in rooms and it works. And it's really great for new players who are like, how does this game work? To know that either you have an idea about what you want to do or you have this default action of pick a door and go through it. And so nobody's ever lost. Like it's an incredibly versatile and powerful and very accessible structure. There's a YouTube channel, I think it's called Bob Worldbuilds or something like that. I've eaten a great um, set on the, the Icewing Dale Starter Adventures because they're all like, I don't want to say broken, but they could all be better. And it, it's something I've noticed quite a lot in a lot of games where they like put an example of a game, in, or an example scenario in the game, which doesn't follow the, their own rules that they've stated <laughs> in their game. You know, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, stuff like um, 
there's weir rats or something or weir creatures in one of the adventures, but there's no point at the way they mention you need a magical or a silver weapon or give them to the players so they look there's no way to defeat the creature. Oh. Or, you know, they're including loads of orca jellies, which are all challenge rated too, but this is supposed to be for first level characters. And, but it, it is again, it's like quite a six to eight minute sessions, but for each one he goes through each scenario and goes, this is how you could make it better. And, and what's really doing is pointing out the flaws, but it is highly valuable stuff in terms of for new GMs, it's, it's absolute gold in terms of like what you would do. Because I imagine a lot of people are just picking up the books and trying mm-hmm. to run it straight as written. Oh, and yeah. they will encounter problems because it's not being designed optimally. Starter set adventures are very tricky in general because because there are in fact because you have to you have to observe all the rules, but there's actually kind of an unwritten set of rules that you also need to observe when designing that starter set. One I think of is uh, the fourth edition um, Keep of the Shadowfell adventure, which was the first adventure released before the core rule books were for fourth edition. It was very much it was Here's your introduction to fourth edition. But the very first encounter in that adventure was with kobolds. And I don't remember the exact mechanic that was involved, but the kobolds in fourth edition had some special rule that changed the way that I think, I think it was, I think it was like the equivalent of five foot steps in fourth edition. There was some special rule kobolds have where they get to treat that five foot step in a way different than anybody else does. And it Every time I, I ran Keep in the Shadowfell several times, and particularly for p- people coming to the game, that would confuse them because this is the first fight, and all the NPCs have an ability that breaks a core combat rule in a very specific and consistent way. And so you're trying to figure out the combat rules, and you're learning how it works for kobolds, but it doesn't work that way for you. And like that, so that that was a, as a designer, it was really interesting watching that happen in I guess two thousand eight. Now I now I do feel old, <laughs> fourteen years ago. But seeing that in two thousand eight when I was running those adventures, because like oh, I hadn't thought about this previously. But yeah, and those starter adventures when you design those for a system, very important to make sure the first couple of encounters don't include rules like that. That 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 you are designing encounters to teach the game. And you want to make sure you're teaching the game and not the exception to the game. Whereas later on, exception-based design is, of course, kind of everywhere in role-playing games almost by necessity. And that's fine. It's just that, that extra layer of thinking about how how is this first encounter going, what is this first encounter going to teach the players about how the game works? And is that actually how the game works? <laughs> For sure. I think the other bit of, um, so I guess it's exploration when we're still on that topic a little bit, is um, the plot point campaigns from Savage World. Certainly 50 mm. Fathoms is a good one, but it's a bunch of locations. There's a thing that happens at each of the locations. You don't have to do it in any particular order. They've all got appointed to another location. Uh, and there's a bunch of Savage Tales of things that can just happen. And then over that, you've got six, whatever, adventures, if you want to call them, are like the main plot points that will lead you to a conclusion. And I'm surprised you don't see more of that. I mean, that could apply to D&D or anything, really. It's just kind of... Um, it's how I write scenarios. I think Guy has a similar approach as well. Is you have like locations and people and you know bangs or whatever you want to call them, like stuff that will happen to instigate events. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, I don't know. For me, it feels like it shouldn't be too difficult to for wizards or whoever to build uh, a bit more flexible, you know, multi-directional adventures. Really, that will still have some overarching plot or some direction, but enable a more fluid style, perhaps. Well, and it's interesting because what it, what it really begins revealing the more you begin, begin exploring that is the degree to which sort of the, the railroads that, that exist are so unnecessary to the content frequently. So like one of the things I do on the Alexandrian is I, I do do actually very large remixes um, of various campaigns. Uh, Dragon Heist was one of them to send into a Vern's I actually did a remix of Eternal Lies for Trail of Cthulhu as well. 
And one of the reasons I do those is that it's not just because I, I think it's interesting to explore that material, but as someone who whose modus operandi is to try to like share the things I've learned about GMing over the past 30 years with other people, having these examples of this is how I prep campaigns by going in and looking at these railroads and how to sort of break those railroads apart. And and the most interesting thing I've found is that so frequently the process of, I want to say fixing, fixing these adventures so that they're not railroads and have this more flexible approach where you can, you know, go to a place and learn a bunch of things and then have choices about where you want to go next is that it doesn't actually take a lot of work to do that because the meat of any scenario is, is the locations, is the stuff you can do in there. And the connections are are much easier to, 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 to fix. So, I mean, so often you'll run into the super railroad adventure, but it, it's actually not that difficult to sort of take the actual meaningful content chunks and rearrange them into a node-based design or a hex crawl design and, and have that flexibility of adventure. So is that, is that a piece of general advice that when you run published adventures, when one runs published adventures, we should be prepared to remix and mix it up and uh, adapt yeah, it I to think what so. we think works better? I think, is there a thing about not being as not being overawed by the fact it's published and maybe not trying to run it, not trying to run it as written, unless you're playtesting for Atlas Games, obviously, in which case you should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the, we're talking about playtesting. Playtesting is totally different than actually running something for your, for your table. The first thing I'll do when I'll get an adventure, I, I mean, like, there's, there's two errors I think people make. One is like, well, it's published. I've got to run it the way it is. Yeah, nonsense. The second error people make is... Um, is that it's published, therefore I need to save it. And like, so for example, I'll get people who send me emails sometimes because they like the Dragon High Street Max or the Send to a Burning Street Max. And they're like, here's an adventure I found. It is complete garbage. I like nothing about it. Can you do a remix of it? And my response is no. Why would I want to do that? That's, it's not, it's a, it's, it, if there's nothing redeeming about it, why would I, why would I do that? Like the reason I remix Descent into Avernus is that, the the adventure has this incredibly cool lore and backstory to it and lots of really cool adventure locations within it and a lot of really rich interesting npcs and the problem i have with the adventure is that it's this linear railroad that doesn't often make a lot of sense but you can take all the cool bits that you like and remix them in order to kind of access um to kind of access the cool material and that's a lot of what when i'm thinking about how do i how do i remix an adventure or how do i prep an adventure a lot of what I'm thinking about is, well, how can I make sure that the players have access to this material? Completely different example. I remember, I remember when I was a kid uh, in the in the early '90s, and there was a Ravenloft adventure that came out, and I remember getting the Ravenloft adventure um, and and reading through it, and thinking this adventure is really cool, and then realizing about halfway through it that all the cool things in the adventure were things that the players would never know about. They were like the backstories for the NPCs were really cool. There was all these Machiavellian things that the NPCs were doing like off camera. Uh, and the actual experience of the players like accessed like maybe 10% of the of the of the adventure content. And so I was like, well that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. Like isn't the point to like share the awesome with your players. And so so much of of my work when I'm designing or or prepping or whatever is just thinking about how do we actually make sure the players can access this. And I, you know, as a developer at Atlas and as a GM myself, prepping material or adapting material to my table, uh, one of the spot checks I'll do is, hey, I just, I just did something cool or I just saw something cool. 
do I have a way of sharing that with the players? And if not, at least nine times out of 10, and more likely like 99 times out of 100, the answer is I need to figure out how to make that accessible to the players, how to, how to bake that in there in some way. Yeah, it's, it's good that we've moved on from the sort of 90s adventures, which all begin 200 years ago, and the two pages of... <laughs> I think Dungeon yeah. Adventures. I love Dungeon Magazine, but it was it was a big exponent of that, wasn't it? Loads of exciting stuff happened mm-hmm. before this happened, and here's the the one adventure you've got. And here's the boring adventure that happens two centuries later <laughs> after all that. Interesting <laughs> yeah, why can't we do that? Why can't we make them? <laughs> that's actually that's actually a tip I have on um, one one of the features I do on the Alexandrian is random GM tips on there, and one of my random G- GM tips is titled "Rewinding the Timeline" because there are so many role playing supplements, particularly from the '90s, but even today, where you read where you read the setting information or the adventure backstory, and it's all this amazingly cool stuff, and you're like, "But that's I want to do that." And like one of the easiest <laughs> things you can do is just be like, "Yeah, I'll just rewind and go play through those events instead of having them all be the backstory to what's going on now." Definitely, definitely. Do you think so? Some of your GM advice it sort of straddles what I know. I know they're not definitions, but sort of trad and indie games or story games or trendy or whatever you want to call it. Um, do you think that that's a general move that those that the sort of story games moving is movement is is joining with the sort of traditional like mainstream games now? Is that becoming more prevalent? I do think that's becoming more prevalent. So I I tend to. I tend to think of of role-playing games and storytelling games as being two different things. And that doesn't mean that they don't overlap in much the same way. Like you you can say card games and board games are two different things, but like there are tons of board games that have cards in them. Right. So like for me, what, what is, what is definitional about a role-playing game is that the role-playing game has mechanics in which your mechanical decisions are directly associated to the decisions that your character is making. So that when you make a mechanical decision in the game, like to cast a fireball spell, for example, that is directly associated to your character making the decision to cast a fireball. That's the difference between like Monopoly, where technically you're all playing bankers, but like your banker character isn't rolling dice and then moving around the board, right? Like that's not associated to any decision that they're making. Storytelling games are games in which the mechanics determine who has narrative control over the conclusion of a particular scene or a particular narrative chunk of content. And so in a game like, uh, to take, take an, it's like, there's a whole bunch of games that are kind of in the middle with different elements of both, but to take an example of a storytelling game that is purely a storytelling game uh, is Once Upon a Time, which is a card, card game, card-based storytelling game from Atlas Games. And in story, Once Upon a Time, each card has a different narrative element. And the basic mechanic of Once Upon a Time is that the first player begins telling a story, a fairy tale. And when they introduce an element into the fairy tale that they're telling that is on one of their cards, they can play that card. But if they mention a storytelling element that somebody else has in one of their cards, then they can play the card and steal control of the story and begin telling the story going forward. That's a very, that's a very clear example of a storytelling mechanic that has nothing in common with a role-playing game mechanic. Um, but that to me is the division between the two. But like, like you say, Guy, we're beginning to see more and more of storytelling game influence and role-playing games and obviously, and obviously vice versa. And I think one of the biggest influences that we're seeing from storytelling games right now is that storytelling games have been much more conscious of the structure of the story that they're trying to tell or trying to create mechanically within the system by necessity, because the mechanics have to be about not the simulation of a character state, but the narrative construction of story 
So they're much more conscious of that. Uh, take a storytelling game like 10 Candles, for example, where you've got the 10 candles around the board and, and the mechanic is at the end of each scene, you put out one of the candles as things become more difficult and eventually, spoilers, everyone dies. And that's, you know, so there's a very conscious thought about what is the structure of that story that we're telling. And that is something that we're beginning to see influence into RPGs more and more. Like Blades in the Dark is a great example of this. Blades in the Dark is 100% a role-playing game, but there's a very conscious thought about what is, what, is the, what is the type of story we're telling with Blades in the Dark and what structure do we need to give to the GM and to the players in order to tell those, those high-spaced stories uh, in Blades in the Dark. Yeah, Blades in the Dark is another campaign that we're currently running in. <laughs> it's, been, it's like a hit show of all the games we're into. It. <laughs> um, but yeah, to sort of like segue between the Alexandria and, uh, and Atlas games, you've got uh, an episode which mentions RPGs aren't movies, but one game that probably is quite like movies is Feng Shui, which, um, you know, again, we've played quite recently. Uh, but that's, that does follow, like, um, consciously Hong Kong movies and have those kind of beats and Ace has got to be linear to a certain extent because that's the narrative of how those sort of stories are told, if you know what I mean. Atlas did try doing a subscription model for a bit with uh, Feng Shui, which, you know, for whatever logistical reasons couldn't quite pan out, but there's more planned for it. What can you tell us about how Feng Shui plays and perhaps what's coming up for it in the future? Yeah, so for Feng Shui uh, was a, is a Hong Kong action role-playing game uh, designed by Robin D. Laws. Originally came back out back in the 90s by through a company called Daedalus. Daedalus went out of business and Atlas acquired the license for Feng Shui and has been producing it ever since. Uh, the second edition of the game came out in, in 2014 that kind of updated the whole thing. The very clever thing about Feng Shui that Robin, that Robin did was that he wanted to capture the amazingly cool breadth of Hong Kong action movies. And Hong Kong action movies vary from like modern cop dramas to historical fantasy pieces to like science fiction thrillers. But he really wanted to capture all that in one game. Now, one way you could have done that would have been to make a generic system. What he went with instead was a time war where actually the characters could jump through uh, an in-between space called the netherworld where portals opened up on specific uh, on specific uh, junctures, and you would emerge into 69 AD, the 19th century, where the British Empire is trying to uh, take over China, and you could tell these great stories about Chinese um, freedom fighters fighting off the evil empire from across the seas, uh, modern day stories, and of course also the future, which was originally back in the 90s a dystopian cyberpunk for the new edition. It is instead uh, sort of a Mad Max style universe dominated by cyber apes. And the cool thing is, is the time travel there kind of allows you to jump back and forth between these different time periods and to, uh, to ex explore with one character all these, different, all these different settings, but without getting into all the tricky stuff with like time travel paradoxes where all your stories become about time travel instead, because your time travel is limited between these very specific time periods and you can't jump back and forth in your own timeline, for example. So that's kind of the game. Now, the game is designed, as, as you said, to really capture that cinematic experience of these big fight scenes and everything else. But it's one of the things I love about the way that Feng Shui does this is like the, the video time about RPGs aren't movies. The, the specific thing about how RPGs are movies is that they aren't linear experiences. They shouldn't have predetermined plots. And that's the great thing about Feng Shui, right? Is you get to leap in and actually be the hero, make the choices, 
and explore those those narratives. Now, I'm not going to say that feng shui has never had a linear adventure written for it. It <laughs> came out in the 90s. It definitely had linear adventures written for it. Um, but one of the things we really focused on when we were doing the subscription program was trying to find, uh, you know, trying to find ways to let people kind of just exist in a cinematically infused universe, an action movie trope infused universe without necessarily having that linear experience. So for example, one of our adventures was Burning Dragon by Jonathan Kilstring. And Burning Dragon sees the sees the PC heroes go to this, uh, see them go to this uh, festival, sort of a Burning Man style festival in Mongolia called Burning Dragon. And the festival has been corrupted by some evil sorcerers who are using it to cast evil rituals. But the way we present the adventures is all these different districts in the Burning Dragon festival. And the PCs can choose to go to any one of these districts. In each district, there's different things happening, different events, different NPCs and the like. And like the, um, like the Savage Worlds campaigns you were talking about earlier, it's very much you go to these places, there's all kinds of interesting things you can follow up with them. And so you can you can explore this festival in whatever way you want to explore it. And the adventure will continue, eventually culminating in a big fight at the end. But the way in which you get to that fight and what that means for the final fight is is very varied based on who you've encountered and what resources you've managed to gain uh, throughout the festival and also whose faces you managed to punch uh, throughout the festival. <laughs> You'd also ask what is going on with feng shui currently. Well, as you mentioned, we, we had tried to do a subscription program for it. And, and basically the idea behind our subscription program, like any subscription program, is that what we are attempting to find is enough support that we can produce content with confidence. Uh, one of the biggest dangers with the, with the RP, to work in the RPG industry is that it's very expensive to produce thousands and thousands of words of content with associated graphics um, and then to public print that and then to distribute it. That's all a very expensive process. And the marginal profits that you make on a successful supplement can be immediately wiped out if you guess wrong or something, or the market goes a little bit wacky, you can, you can wipe it all out on a single supplement that just didn't sell because you were wrong about the idea, it didn't resonate with the audience, or it was a bad month for you to release it after all, and local stores never carried it. So one of the things, like one of our goals with the subscription program is to get to a point where we would have enough subscribers supporting the release of an adventure, for example, where we could say, okay, well, we will definitely break even doing all that development work, doing that printing, doing that distribution, we will break even because we know that there are 400 people who will buy this adventure and have committed to buying this adventure. And then knowing that we can produce it and then all the other people who aren't willing to commit to buying every single feng shui product, they can pick and choose and that's great. Those are also the people we're creating for, but we have this base of security where we can actually like do the books without panicking about whether or not we're going to all go bankrupt next month you know what i mean so that was the goal the reason it didn't work out is we never quite got to that threshold number of people that was necessary and so we we ended up really close but even after about a year and a half of trying to get to that to it was, it was really 400 people that we've done all the budget work out we need 400 people we ended up with slightly over 300 people who were subscribing and that was great. I cannot thank those people enough for their support. Um, but it just wasn't a place. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we just weren't able to quite get to that place where we could. We were still we were still rolling the dice with every release, and still at risk of like losing everything we had on the previous releases. So that's the bad news. The good news is that we still do have new feng shui projects in development currently. 
And so there, there will be more feng shui in the future. The ways in which we, the way in which we develop that material and make sure that we can do so in a way that is responsible in the sense that we can continue producing RPG material in the future, uh, that's probably going to end up being a Kickstarter. It's probably what we're going to be experimenting with. And then seeing, and seeing if we can run a Kickstarter specifically for feng shui that will get enough attention that we can we can justify doing it. And it's for success, then you'll probably see more feng shui material in the future as, as well after that. Our, our first experiment with that, because we, we had done a number of Kickstarters of like new games or, or new editions of, of role-playing games in terms of feng shui and unknown armies and over the edge. And our first experiment with doing a Kickstarter that was focused exclusively on supplemental material was actually for our Magical Kitties Save the Day game. Magical Kitties Save the, Ga Save the Day is, is a again, patting myself on the back, a really fantastic RPG uh, that is that is aimed at being players' first experience with a role-playing game. The concept of the game is that everybody plays a magical kitty who has a magical power, but every kitty also has a human that they care about, and those humans have problems. And so the magical kitties need to solve those problems. But every human also lives in a hometown, and those hometowns also have problems, things like witches and hyper-intelligent raccoons and alien invasions from outer space. And those problems tend to make human problems worse. And so the magical kitties need to use their magical powers to solve those problems so that they can solve their humans' problems and everyone can be happy. The kitties need to save the day. So like one of the things we did with this game is when you open, it comes in a box set. When you first open the box set, there is a graphic novel comic book sitting right inside that is a choose your own adventure comic book that also creates your character and you create your character through it. And then you also learn the mechanics of the game. So it's like a choose your own adventure book that does also a comic book that is also using role-playing game mechanics to to resolve the action. And so that's very much designed that you've never played a role-playing game before here is your first one. And like our primary audience for it was really thinking about parents who wanted to share role-playing games with their kids for the first time. But we have rapidly discovered that everybody loves kitties. And so there's lots of people enjoying <laughs> Magical Kitties Save the Day. Long way around, we did run a successful Kickstarter for Magical Kitty supplements. And so we have a high degree of confidence that Feng Shui, which is also a very popular game, obviously, will also be able to support a Kickstarter for those supplements as a, as a way of figuring out how to pay for cool content, basically. That makes a lot of sense. So um, one of the other things I wanted to ask about briefly, which, which you might not have as, as comprehensive an answer for, uh, <laughs> is Oz Magica or Oz Magica, Magica, or however you want to pronounce it. I, I got Feng Shui wrong, but I was speaking Mandarin rather than Cantonese, so that's why I pronounced it differently. Well, there's, there's like eight different uh, pronunciations. We actually talk about in the rule book how there's multiple pronunciations. Depending for, on your dialect, yeah. it could be all the exactly. <laughs> Uh, so um, yeah, I was magic. We did speak to Jonathan Tweet a while back, and one thing we've noticed that other companies are doing are either just straight up re-releasing old games, or just reprinting them, like Request, for example, the second edition. Just they just blindly reprinted it and uh, did well. And we'll talk about a new edition possibly of Eyes Magic if it had come out again. And, and Jonathan wasn't like massively on board with that. But another thing companies have done as well is reprinted the game, but like added lots of new art and all the rest of it. And that's something you can do via Kickstarter or the crowdfunding thing. So is, is there a possibility to get like a remixed version of a, a classic game like that and planting the seed as of? He said he was going to go and speak to John Nephew. I don't know. Yeah. So, so you remember at the beginning when you said that if, if the topic came up that I couldn't really comment on, that I should say we should just, <laughs> here's, here's what I'll say. 
I can neither confirm nor deny what the what the current plans are for us magic going forward. But I, I think I can safely say publicly uh, that that in for certain definitions of near, we'll go with that. Uh, everything COVID COVID changed many things in terms of timelines in our industry. Uh, but for certain, at least for some definition of near, there will be an Ars Magica Kickstarter in, in the near-ish future. I am not in a position currently to comment on what that will be, but I will say that somewhere in what you were just talking about in terms of new editions slash revised editions slash new releases slash reprints, it'll be somewhere in there, yeah. <laughs> well, roll a d6 on the chart and you'll get one of those. I mean, the, one, the other thing I can say about Ars Magica in terms of I can't comment specific on our plans are, but it has been a tough nut to crack. And for, for, for the company, even before I came, I came on board with Atlas in, in uh, December 2018. And um, even before that, uh, Cam Banks, who was the RPG producer before me, who was now working on um, his Cortex role-playing game. He'd also been struggling with trying to figure out. And, and the reason is that Ars Magica is a tough nut to crack is because of how successful the fifth edition of the game is, the current edition of the game, which is still in print, I should know, for anyone who's thinking it's just gone in the, in the, in the universe out there, which is actually part of the problem. Fifth edition um, was is a very good edition of Ars Magica to find out a lot of difficulties with the game and everything else. And then the other thing that fifth edition does, so David Chart, who was the line developer on fifth edition back when it started in 2003, when he pitched fifth edition to uh, Atlas Games, he said, we should do a new rule book. It should look like this. And then what we should do is here's a list of um, 40 supplements for Ars Magica. We'll have four of these per year, one released every quarter for the next 10 years. And then that'll give you a complete product line for Ars Magica fifth edition that will be very comprehensive. And then he did it, which like for anyone who actually ever been involved in trying to release things on a schedule is like a miracle. But like he was like, yeah, and here's fifth edition and here's our book every single quarter for 10 years straight. There's 40 books. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to go retire to Japan. And and it's, it's it, for me, it's like a miracle looking at it. But part of it is like it's, it's a it's a very comprehensive line of very high quality supplements. Uh, and there's 40 of them. And so one of the things that is a is a struggle for Ars Magica, it's like on the one hand, it's like, well, it's a really good edition. We should just publish more books for it. Um, but even though the, even though people love it, part of the problem you run into when you have 40 supplements is that the vast majority of your of your player base is not going to actually buy 40 books. They're going to buy the five or six books that they're interested in. And when you get up to about 40 books, what you end up with at that point is that the decisions of five or six books each begin spreading out to such a degree that the last books that you're releasing are not seeing high enough sales to uh, to, to justify publishing new books that are becoming becoming now now every single book we did with Ars Magic was profit but very adroitly uh, it was identified hey if we keep doing this there'll come a point where we're no longer making a profit on these books and we'll start losing money and that's no that that's how you eventually don't have the game at all anymore. So one of the things we were doing with the Feng Shui subscription program was actually sort of beta testing subscriptions to see if we could apply them to other games. And the fact that we didn't have a lot of success with that program means that that's not the way we're going to go with Ars Magica, at least for the immediate future. But so that that's that's the backstory of why it's been such a tough nut to crack is actually ironically because it is such a successful edition of the game that in many ways it just kind of sits as a complete edifice of of really good to great to maybe perfect. And it's really difficult to figure out how to like, you know, it would be like taking a Michelangelo sculpture and being like, well, how can we just chip off a little bit more marble on this? <laughs> or what can we, can we take, can we take a we glob of clay and stick some more stuff on it? It's just, it's, it's a really tough nut to crack because of that. Mm. 
but uh, but there will be Ars Magica in the near future. I can tell you that. Excellent. That's good to hear. Okay, I'm just conscious of time. So one question we normally ask, uh, I guess, is and, and from the sounds of it, you are quite white red and you, you play quite a lot of stuff. Are there any other games out there, any other RPGs that you're interested in at the minute or some interesting stuff that's out there on the horizon that maybe you think our listeners would be interested in? Yeah, let me think here real quick. So my... What is what is currently on my my radar? Well, I mean, unsurprisingly, there's a whole bunch of Atlas game stuff I'm doing. In addition to currently finishing out Plain Gia, I'm also looking ahead to plotting out my first really big, like one to twenty Plain Gia campaign. Uh, so that's also right on the horizon for me. Looking beyond stuff that I am personally responsible for, uh, I'm actually looking right now at running a traveler RPG game. I'm debating whether to use some of the newer Traveler rules or actually go old school with it and like explore the early 1977, 1981 edition of the game. But one thing that's really kind of attracting me to that is a supplement from Mongoose called Pirates of the Dranox by uh, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And uh, it, it looks really fascinating. So that's that's what I'm actually, that's what's currently on my, my bedside, my, currently my bedside table. I am also looking at what else am I looking at right now? I'm not going to run this, so this doesn't maybe count. But I'm actually am currently looking at the original classic Dragonlance modules uh, and kind of looking at them with a critical eye about what went right there and why did they become so popular at the time, and also what went what went horribly horribly wrong with them. It's not. Is, is there any is there any like railroading in those? Is that potentially <laughs> it's a little bit of railroading? It's well hidden, but in fact, it, it, you will discover that there is a little bit of railroading, railroading in, in those books. It's the part, where my my the part where it really jumps, where it really jumps the shark for me is like the first few adventures aren't too bad, and then there's a point where they're like, and this will be the point where two of the PCs get married because they got married in the books, and you're like, what? How do you? How would I even make that? Although this this, uh, this is this is a bit of attention, but this is something that happens quite a bit in published adventures, where like there'll suddenly be this character who shows up, and and the author will be like, now look, it's possible that one of the PCs will fall madly in love with this NPC, and then they're going to like get married and like do stuff. And it, it ha and like I've seen this like maybe a dozen times over the years, and the only explanation I can come up with is like when they ran the adventure for their players, one of their players happened to fall in love with that NPC, which is great for that game that they played, but like, it's never going to happen again. Like you're never going to actually have that specific NPC be one that the PCs fall in love with. It's great that you had a great game. Everyone should, should wish for that, but don't publish the adventure on the assumption that everyone's going to have that exact same magical moment happen at their table. Um, so that's that's on my list of things I'm that's that's on my list of things I'm exploring too is the is the Dragonlance, um, and then uh, I, I really want to get a Knights Black Agents campaign up and running, uh, specifically the Dracula dossier. I, that's one where I was about to run it. Um, I was about to run it in 2015, and then got hired by Modifius to design their Infinity RPG game, um, and so that consumed all my bandwidth for a while. And then I was going to run it again in 2018, but then got hired by Atlas Games as their RPG producer. And like I spent a year just literally doing nothing but playing Atlas RPGs. And then I had a game that was going to come together in 2020, and that was when COVID happened. So that hasn't happened either. But so I may be dooming us by wanting to play Nice Black Agents again. It's possible it's cursed and there'll be a nuclear war if I attempt to run it again. But I, I really like it. So you're just going to have to put up with small-scale nuclear warfare uh, so that I can play my Dracula game, gosh dang it. 
You did it in a weekend, didn't you, guy? Yeah, we did it. <laughs> yeah, we did it in a in a weekend. It was uh, oh. down, yeah, still one of my like uh, best RPG experiences of my life. Really, we did it. We had uh, we had like a proper like cork board with all the oh, all the cards it. up and string next to it, and genuinely sort of epic conclusion. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably worth the nuclear war. I'd say to get to run it. It's uh, it is exceptional. <laughs> My one of my bucket list is actually um, the Beyond the Mountains of Madness campaign for Call of Cthulhu. What I want to do is rent a cabin in the middle of winter and like take all the players up for a week and just play play that campaign for a solid week with like the wind howling outside the doors. Um, someday I'm going to make that happen. Sounds cool. Well, we didn't even get a chance to speak about 2D20 games and many other things we're interested in, uh, but time's against us. So thanks very much for coming on, and maybe we can entice you back to a future episode in the near future. Definitely. Cheers, Justin. Cheers to you too. Thanks for having me.